Hello and welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I'm your host, Titus, and today in a critic series, I'm joined by my friend David Polanski. We will be talking today about despotism, totalitarianism, dystopia, tyrannies of past and future in art in Terry Gilliam's Brazil, the 1985 movie that David thinks might be the best portrayal of the despotism we to some extent witness today and suspect might be unfolding before our eyes with a view to the future rather than the 20th century past of totalitarianism. Now, of course, first of all, David, please introduce yourself to our audience since you are here for the first time on the ACF podcast. And then let's get to talking about Brazil. All right. Uh, thanks so much for having me. This is always a pleasure. My name is David Polanski. I kind of bounce around a lot. Let's see. I lived in, I lived around the world. I lived in Rome. I lived in China. I lived throughout the United States. I'm originally American, but now I live in Toronto and people keep calling me Canadian, which is very upsetting. I did my master's at University of Chicago and my PhD at the University of Toronto in political theory. These days I work in the secular world, but I still try to get some writing done when I can. And lately, I guess, funnily enough, I have been writing a fair bit on the relationship between science fiction and dystopian fiction and politics. I actually have an article coming out on Soil and Green, I think later this month in the New Atlantis. Although truth be told, I've never thought of myself as an aficionado of science fiction, although I also had a piece in the New Atlantis last year, again, on science fiction and politics, during which I was forced to conclude I have read a lot more science fiction than I ever wanted to admit to myself. Yeah, Neil Stevenson, right? was the object of that piece. That was a wonderful essay, which I recommend to everybody. The New Atlantis, it's it's an essay on Neil Stevenson's science fiction. I think it's the most attractive all things told piece I've read by you. Well, thank you. That is super kind. And yeah, and in the process of thinking about this thing, I have had to admit the ways in which this kind of fiction can sketch out our political situation as well as just political possibilities. I don't think this is accidental. Obviously, you know, this sort of genre fiction has become a bit of a ghetto culturally and literarily. But I mean, historically, I do agree with, you know, the statement of Borges, where he basically says all of the great early modern thinkers were doing science fiction. You know, I mean, they had to rely on speculation in order to sketch out political possibilities rather than mere observation the way that, for example, the Greeks could. And to some degree, this is still our situation, which is why potentially at least these forms of uh, fantastical fiction still remain, I think, viable avenues for political reflection. Yeah, I think that's right. I think to some extent, this is a generally true statement that both because so much in our political orders changes, we are in need of speculation, and also because in certain ways, these kinds of political changes are driven by an awareness that we lack something to be politically sound, and that, again, even if one did not wish to anticipate the future, even if one did not wish to look practically to what changes might come, one would theoretically still have to imagine these things to figure out what is it that we think we are lacking, what might political soundness be? Yeah, I mean, I think that's right. And beyond that, it just it is kind of our political situation. And this is partly by design that we are in some way removed or abstracted from the real practices of political life. We already encounter these things, you know, through a kind of remove and through these ideas of representation. And so in a way, it's not strange that we would have to access these ideas through some sort of mimetic form of reflection. But I think we agree on this. Yeah, and that opens up the room for literature to somehow connect people to a political organization that is incredibly sophisticated. As you said, its workings are for the most part obscure to us. 
and necessarily so. The workings of political representation involve both theoretically and practically all sorts of obstacles between the people and the politicians. And whether we wish to remove those things for some revolutionary purpose or to safeguard those obstacles, we need some kind of connection to the workings of politics. And it seems like it would have to be imaginative since it cannot be practical. And that means that artists and intellectuals have some kind of role to play as in between the body of citizens and the politicians, and of course, administrators and all the clerks, so on and so forth. But it's not clear what that role is, and that's somehow an indeterminacy at the core of modern theories of representation. So this is somehow always there when you watch these kinds of movies or read these kinds of stories of totalitarianism, because it forces some protagonist to deal directly with the things that usually we only deal with very indirectly. And so it is the case with Brazil. The oddities and intricacies of a tyranny that everybody somehow used to or resigned to become the personal problem of this one guy. And through his misadventures, we get to see part after part, class after class, all sorts of fragments, maybe not even parts of this society. And the story forces you to ask, Does this society hold together? Does it even have parts? If they're just fragments, what are they fragments of? To some extent, they're recognizable. To some extent, they're parodic. And occasionally, they are horrifying. Altogether, it's a funny movie, but it's funny, I think, because it's so disturbing that we can't quite understand what we are seeing. It's close enough to normal life, so to speak, to be recognizable, but it's absurd that it suggests maybe something is wrong with our normal lives, but also that maybe these parts don't fit together. This is not, although we might like to think so, a system. The defenders of the system might like to call it that, so might its detractors. After all, conspiracy uh, theory assumes a lot of coherence and rationality and planning and execution, which might not be the case. Things may be more absurd than we generally wish to admit, and uh, the film seems to gradually unfold that possibility for us and ask us as an audience, how plausible is this picture and how coherent is it? This kind of criticism of politics, to some extent, is like what people nowadays call anarcho-tyranny from San Francis. Tyranny at the top and anarchy for the people who used to have equality before the law, civil tranquility, etc., etc. To some extent, it's quite different. But, uh, but so with uh, our introduction, uh, David, please f- first take us very briefly to the plot and then start us off with your reflections on the plausibility of Brazil for our situation. Sure. All right. So this is Terry Gilliam's Brazil, and it is his sort of broad dystopian vision of what the future would be, although he says it's set sometime in the 20th century. So at that time, it's made in 1985. We don't know how quickly this will happen in his vision. And in broad sketches, you know, if we think of the different kinds of dystopian as sort of ruthless totalitarianism of 1984, or you can think of it as something like the soft totalitarianism of Brave New World, Gilliam's vision in Brazil is somewhere between the two. And it is basically a future that is not so much driven by ideology, but by bureaucracy, in which all of our systems have somehow become strangely decrepit but also overwhelming and overpowering and all controlling. And it tells the story, I should note, by the way, that because I constantly have to keep saying this every time I mention, I compare something to Brazil. I'm not, you know, Brazil is it's not the country, it's the movie, and the movie is not set in Brazil. It's only named after a song. It's probably supposed to be a kind of future or a dystopian version of England because of how many of the uh, social moors seem very English. In any event, it follows the trajectory of this unassuming bureaucrat played perfectly by Jonathan Price, 
And he's a sort of Walter Mitty-ish figure who spends most of his time daydreaming about these various fantastical uh, adventures that he might have. He's also a bit of a Don Quixote figure. It's not incidentally that Terry Gilliam was spent his whole career being obsessed with making Don Quixote. And most of this character's visions and fantasies involve him uh, dressed as a knight. And his Dulcinea is turns out to be this cigarette-smoking truck driver, who is female, I should note, who he envisions as a princess, who he is constantly trying to save. And he gets drawn into this sort of, you mentioned, you know, the conspiracy theories. And what's great about this movie is there is no conspiracy because there's no conspirators. It's simply a system. And he's drawn into this sort of story when a literal, in a great, wonderful Kafka-esque moment, a literal bug ends up coming into a typewriter and it changes the printout in which a terrorist named Tuttle becomes uh, an ordinary guy named Bottle. And this unfortunate... Yeah. Sorry to interrupt you. I think this is one of the many visual puns in the movie. I believe you're exactly right. It is a remark on Kafka's metamorphosis. The bug yeah. turns into a man, but the man turns out to be another man and he gets killed. It's not a terribly subtle film, but I suppose it's one of the more subtle references. And if they don't hit you too much over the head with it, I'd like to say it is an actual tiny bug, a fly that screws up the printing and destroys this unfortunate man named Bottle's life, who is then arrested by the police. And ultimately we find out killed. <laughs> For a comedy, this is an extremely dark movie. Our bureaucrat gets drawn into it because he is ultimately a decent sort and he realizes what's wrong and he keeps trying to fix the problem. Unfortunately, because of the incredible decrepitness of the system, as well as just the overwhelmingness of the bureaucracy, it becomes impossible to fix the problem and help the family. And he himself ends up getting drawn deeper and deeper into all these shenanigans of trying to, he realizes basically how corrupt the system truly is simply in the process of trying to help this poor family <laughs> whose lives have been destroyed by not so much a totalitarian system in the sense of a, a fascist or communist or Soviet government, but simply by a sort of ordinary, really a very ordinary workings of the state, the machinery of which has simply become so overpowering that no individual can stand against it. Ultimately, through complicated series of pop machinations I won't get into too much, he gets drawn into the web of the actual terrorist a guy named Tuttle, played by De Niro, who is basically a cartoonish figure and a somewhat sinister one in that it's never clear what his actual aims are. We see the effects of his destruction throughout, but there's no real political goal here. And so it's reminiscent of the violence of the IRA at the time, but without any real political valence. It's almost sort of a nightmarish destruction that happens at random. And we're meant to see De Niro as somehow heroic only in relation to this overpowering and inhuman system. Am I allowed to spoil the ending here? All right, let's spoil the ending. The ending is probably one of the bleakest that I've seen in modern cinema. And famously, Gilliam got into a terrible tussle with the studios over this one. He basically had to battle them down in public in order to get them to release his preferred version. But ultimately, our hero, in the process of trying to rescue his truck driving paramour, and also having become an inadvertent associate of the terroristic De Niro character, he does become captured by the state. And in the process, we see him getting tortured in a sort of Winston Smithish 1984 climax, at which point he's violently rescued by De Niro and he goes off with his paramour. Only at the very end, do we realize that the entire thing is still happening in his head. He remains in the chair in the torture chamber, uh, completely lost in his fantasies at which point the state torturers basically decide to give up on him. There's no point, he's gone. And that's how the film ends. 
yeah, you could say that the story altogether suggests that the ordinary decent guy is not going to make it. That's a phrase people use a lot online, on Twitter at least. You're not going to make it. This would be one of the few movies that follows through on that sentiment or indictment, even if you want to call it. This strange protagonist, Jonathan Price, plays him. He's at times a bumbler. Sometimes he's a competent bureaucrat. Sometimes he's dressed like a shamos, like a detective in the 40s noir movies. And obviously, as you said, he has this fantasy of himself, which is a fantasy of nobility. It's not just of loving a beautiful woman and perhaps winning her love by saving her, but of being a knight, of doing something noble. Somehow this nostalgia is completely inadequate to the technological bureaucratic world he lives in and which he serves in some modest capacity. But it might be what's keeping him alive just before it's what gets him killed. He sees by accident a young woman that seems to him to fulfill that dream. She could be somebody with whom he could fall in love. And it turns out that in a way he's right. First of all, the girl is in need of saving from a terror, the terror being the bureaucratic technological despotism. And secondly, she somehow does seem to have the moral character a knight might ascribe to his uh, lady fair. So there's an odd juxtaposition there that his fantasies could actually come true, except that he has fantasies. Fantasies don't come true for people who have fantasies. If you have fantasies, you're not going to make it, which is, again, part of the somewhat dark comedy. You could say that at at the most basic level, there's a radical juxtaposition between the day-to-day life and this self-understanding or this wish to be a noble man. In his ordinary life, Sam Lowry leaves it at not getting promoted, not having any ambition, working for an absolutely incompetent boss, played by the lovely Ian Holm, who's really, really convincing in in this role. He brings out all the insecurity, the resentments, the petty tyranny of the role of the middle manager. I think very, very familiar now to people. The ordinary guy might watch The Office. A person of taste would watch Brazil, something like that, for the absurd comedy of the middle management situation. But that's a good position for our protagonist because he just wants to stay out of it. He doesn't want his rich, powerful mother to get him promotions. He doesn't want her connections or that world of rich people who live in a dream. Uh, Strangely enough, all their money buys them nothing. It does not buy them safety from explosions at their favorite restaurants. It doesn't buy them real food in those restaurants. Everything is now slop. Again, another meme of our times, living in the pod and eating the bugs. This is what people do in Brazil. (laughs) They live in pods, they eat the bugs. It's as depressive as the Twitter right-wing reactionaries or revolutionaries or whatever they are say. So the the rich somehow do not have any of the luxuries that they might be resented for or envied for. And that again seems to suggest that there's no way of fighting this system. If the system is such that the rich cannot abuse it for profit, you know, I mean, nobody can. If they can't do it, nobody can achieve anything. And presumably that's why Sam Lowry is so unambitious. There's no avenue for ambition. Ambition presupposes that you could be achieving something something. If you got a bit luckier, tried a lot harder, got some of the breaks, rolled with the punches, etc, etc, etc. No amount of that would work. And yet there is this other thing, the deeply personal erotic dream somehow pushes him into this series of misadventures. And maybe what's so interesting about the movie is that it comes at a terrible price to him, as you say, and in a way to the audience, it's very depressive to see this ordinary guy end up destroyed. But it does somehow become so revealing. 
without that romantic fantasy, without this erotic urge, somehow there is something natural left in this guy who's just trying to stay out of the system. Without that, the story wouldn't happen. We would not get to see this other vision, which is just as artistic, but of course, much more horrifying than his private vision. I think that's all right. And I think the film ultimately is very ambiguous as far as how we're meant to look at his life of fantasy. You know, there's a famous exchange, I think, where Tolkien was defending his work against some of the critics and saying, you know, okay, I get your people would say, oh, well, Lord of the Rings, you know, it's all the Shire. It's just escapism. And he said, well, you know, only jailers should fear escapism. To which, of course, the inevitable response is no jailers are fine with escapism. It's escape that they don't like. And so, you know, you can certainly, I suppose, if one wants to see it, one can see Price's retreats into these fantasies as a kind of, you know, escape, as a kind of moral victory over this inhuman system. Of course, he never really escapes it. But within the context of the film, there's no evidence that this escape is possible in that sense. We are not given a real vision of a world outside of this totalizing, bureaucratic, and frankly, hideous uh, system. One of the most probably disturbing parts in the film is one of his fantasies that the only place actually where we see anything like a natural world, the world of nature, one of his fantasies in a kind of lush green, you know, forest of the kind that, you know, we still see in parts of England. And all of a sudden he's looking for his lady fair and all of a sudden these vast towers and this machinery begins to rise up and break through and completely overwhelm the natural greenery. And until in the very process, almost like we're seeing in an instant, the process of industrialization overtaking the natural world. And in the real world within the film, all we see is this hideous industrialized world. We never see anything green. We are several steps removed from nature at all time. And so I think this is the bleakness of the film. There really, it's not just that he loses, it's that there really is no possibility of winning. Yeah, I think there's a lot to that. As you say, his last fantasy, once he gives up all hope, is terrorists succeeding. Maybe you can blow it all up. Again, that's the online discourse. Burn it down. Now it's a hope wrought of despair. And Terry Gilliam and, and of course, his, his writer, Tom Stoppard, they understand this and they would like to bring it to the attention of the audience as well, that the moral concern that makes somebody think of himself as a knight errant is also what will lead to revolutionary passion. So the fantasy that you can at least burn it down you could say that's a political correlative of suicide. One act of the will. If this is a crazy world, at least this much you can do, kill yourself. That's why in troubled times, so many men do kill themselves. It's not, I don't think, hard to understand. It's just unpleasant to understand because it is very, very difficult to do anything about it. And the movie seems to have that quality. As you say, the terrorist seems like he might be a good guy in some sense. He helps our protagonist, Sam Lowry, and he helps him in turn to escape these terrible bureaucrats with their pettiness. But is the terrorist organization, whatever it might be, even attempting what this guy fantasizes of blowing up the secret police? Somehow this does not happen. I'm not aware of any tyrannic organization where the most odious part of the tyranny, the secret police, the, the arrests, the tortures, the imprisonments, actually gets blown up. It's a fantasy. It just never happens. No, that's right. And I mean, it's a world in which human agency has basically been made impossible. And one of the sort of good jokes of the film is that, again, you know, De Niro never really has a manifesto, but his terroristic character is in his day job. He's like an air conditioning repairman. And it sort of indicates that he was 
driven to this path of political violence and radicalism for the simple reason that his bureaucratic and pop, presumably public company uh, will not allow him to actually fix any air conditioners without going through all the proper channels and filing these endless paperwork. And so finally, this drove him to become a kind of vigilante who both A, goes around fixing people's air conditioners, irrespective of the paperwork. This is how he actually encounters our protagonist. But then also he's pursuing, you know, incredibly destructive political violence as revenge on the system that won't let him just go ahead and fix air conditioners. And this is, I mean, it's a good joke. And what it points to, I think, is the way in which these sort of Leviathan-like systems they distribute and dismantle, I think, you know, the possibility of real authority, including political authority. Nobody in the film actually takes any responsibility. And one of the most chilling, probably the most chilling scene in the film is, is when our protagonist meets his old friend, played by Michael Palin, who is both a high-ranking bureaucrat and a torturer. And he turns out he is the one who has tortured to death the uh, unfortunate Mr. Buttle, who was mistakenly arrested. And he says, well, I did my job. He says, like, I was not the one who made the mistake. He completely refuses to accept any moral responsibility for the horror of what he's done for the reason that, of course, you know, he followed all the proper bureaucratic channels. And in a sense, this is a world in which everything is distributed through process. There is no actual human agency anywhere. The only place we see it either is in this form of weird terrorist action, which is basically nihilistic, or of course, we see it in the fantasy world of our protagonist, or we see it in these sort of aborted attempts by our protagonist to actually take responsibility, both for the woman he falls in love with, and for what he sees as the victim, at least one victim of this inhuman system. Anyone, I think, who has tried to deal with entrenched public bureaucracies in places like Europe or Canada, and increasingly in the United States, I would say, is probably familiar with this process. The sense of which you're simply not dealing with a human being. You are dealing with a kind of agent of the state, agent of the process, who is merely fulfilling their bureaucratic role and is not there to actually solve a problem, but to advance the process at all costs. Yeah, exactly. I think this is why, despite the bleakness, the movie has such power. It starts from experiences that are so common which we believe we can hardly stop, that it's undeniably timely. Maybe timely is not even the, the right word. Maybe it just reveals a lot more than we usually want to reveal. You could say that if you spend a couple of hours scrolling Twitter or reading a paper, you will find one after another after another things that make you angry, things that make you think, why can't this be solved? Why is this problem not getting dealt with? Why isn't anybody doing it? Until you realize I'm also part of the people who aren't doing anything about it because probably they, like me, think there's nothing I can do about it. What can I do about it? Hard enough to get through the day. That realization is incredibly powerful, and I think it gives the movie uh, uh, so much plausibility. Its absurdities start from our experience and seem to unfold and explain that experience to the point where you have to indeed face these kinds of questions. What if representation and authorization, what if modern, sophisticated, indirect forms of rule are really get extended? What if what we see, we just get more of it? What if there's nowhere and at no point somebody who can look you in the eye, judge your case and say yes or no, but it will always be one paper that has to be pushed from office to office to office to office until it gets lost. In a way, it has to be comedic, although it's so dark, because it does not have any tragic dignity. It's ugly. It's not beautiful. Tragedy is beautiful. Comedy is ugly. This is an ugly story. It's a paper that's shuffled until it's uh, lost. It's not in any way dignified. 
that perhaps is, again, the odd combination of uh, plausibility and bleakness that makes this, I think, Terry Gilliam's best work. His peculiar comic insights work out best here. It seems like they're almost designed for this kind of story. But of course, you can also look at it the other way around and say, he's a guy who grew up in a certain kind of society. He looked around. This is what it looked like to him. Over the course of his life, it began to look that way more and more to other people also. He was just early. He was just ahead of his time in a certain sense. Or they, uh, Tom Stoppard, the writer, and then so on and so forth. Just getting clarity from this story, seeing the extent to which a growing sense of helplessness and hopelessness is merely paying attention to what's going on. I think it's, if not invaluable, then certainly very valuable. Hard to state how well the movie does what it does. Maybe the way to I would put it is to say that it's a test of sanity, but it's also an achievement of sanity. And without sanity in this kind of decadent situation, nothing else can get done. Somehow uh, you have to face this kind of bleakness, but unlike the protagonist, not go crazy. Uh, you could say that if somebody had the love of the beautiful that actuates our protagonist, and on the other hand, this love of getting things done, doing something good that makes the terrorist who he is, the dude who wants to help people's heating problems. He's a heating engineer. Society doesn't work without heating in our modern times. The pipes in the walls, under the floors, in the ceilings, if that stops for a day, it's going to be trouble. If it's a week, it's the end. So engineering, right? The modern world is engineering. Whatever you want, you got to add engineering to it. I have to have engineering to write what I write. The people who go around blowing up other parts of the world also do it through engineering. It wouldn't work otherwise. So I don't think they picked it up by accident. But again, what happens with a man with those motivations to get things done, help people out, a kind of philanthropy after all. It's a love of fellow human beings. If it gets thwarted, what happens to these kinds of people? I think it's a plausible argument that some of them might become terrorists or something like it. That is to say that at some point, the inability to do anything good turns you into a fighter, even if you didn't start with any such intention. Philanthropy could turn people actually very cruel if they can't do anything about what they believe to be good and in need of help. You can only see danger or trouble so long up until, you know, you snap. You could say, well, most people will become resigned. They may, they might, they probably will. But what about the rest? So in this way, morally and psychologically, I think the portraits of the protagonists are much more plausible than the, we might give them credit for on account of it's a comedy. It's not serious. I think it's dead serious. You could say that's the motto of black comedy, dead serious. <laughs> so if you could somehow put these two kinds of concerns together, if you could put a character together out of these two different ones, things might look out look very different. I think that is right. I've come to think of this as something like a dystopian film for the end of history. And you can see that, you know, I mean, in the final pages of End of History, Fukuyama, you know, basically admits like there might just be people who just hate this enough that, you know, they will choose some kind of radical violence for its own sake, because at least that's an expression of something like our natural, you know, thumatic desire, our natural spiritedness to rebel against this sort of dull system. Interestingly, I mean, Fukuyama, in that account, I think he's picturing something like a world that actually works, but maybe is not that appealing in some way. And what is striking about the film is, you know, it's really what the invaluable TV Tropes website refers to as a crap sack universe. It's horrible, it's ugly, nothing does work. Interestingly, Fukuyama seems to actually get to this point in one of his later books, his book on political decay, which I think I reviewed a million years ago. And although it's not a successful book, because I don't think Fukuyama has fully worked out what he thinks political decay means and how it happens. Whereas I think Brazil presents an incredibly powerful portrait of what that looks like. You know, a world in which our systems are overwhelmingly complex, but also non-functional. Authority is too distributed to do anything about it. And on top of that, there are just almost no competent people left. 
one of the reasons our protagonist is appealing in the film, he actually is depicted as being quite competent, even within the confines of this ridiculous bureaucracy. People rely on him and his native intelligence. He just seems to understand he should have, in fact, enough native intelligence not to buy into the system. He doesn't believe in it. He doesn't care about it. And he wants to spend his time imagining a better world, you know, a world outside the cave, I suppose, through his fantasies. But I think that is, in a sense, the fear. And that, to me, is the most plausible future and the most plausible present. It's, you know, when we read these accounts of real totalitarianism, they seem very far from us. I mean, we don't really have an O'Brien figure, for example, in our world. And this is why I think that there's a bit of a Kojevian convergence, maybe, in the kinds of political types. You know, this film reminds me in some ways of the lives of others, one of the great cinematic depictions of totalitarianism. But of course, that totalitarian regime that's being depicted in the lives of others, it's the late East Germany. There's no real true believers anymore. What you have are opportunists, you know, people just going along for professional reasons. And, you know, frankly, and for lack of a better word, part of my language, shitheads who are happy to take advantage of the system. There's no one who's really out to defend it. There's no one who simply is trying to create a post-scarcity utopia anymore. And something like that is also seen in Brazil. You know, everyone is just doing their job. It's just made them fundamentally inhuman and has produced a, a system that is fundamentally inhuman. Yeah. One way you could formulate this criticism, so to speak, of Fukuyama is that the world of efficiency, where humans are admittedly dehumanized, reduced to satisfying basic pleasures, basic necessities at that, is a beautiful fantasy, but it is still a fantasy. It still belongs to the imagination rather than to serious political understanding of human motives and the likely consequences of a political arrangement on the kinds of people it then produces. So you could say there's a radical contradiction between the kinds of people necessary to produce what Fukuyama thinks of as the end of history and the kinds of people that that kind of system would produce. It's not going to be self-maintaining. It's not going to last even if you could bring it into being. And it's not clear that you could bring it into being in the first place. Yeah, that's right. And I mean, you know, the sort of Nietzschean fear, this is always a bit of a tension, the Nietzschean fear of the, you know, the last man. I mean, it's either, are we producing something that really is not sustainable, or are we producing something that is sustainable, but in a, in a terrible or contemptible way? And I think in the film's vision, you know, what we're seeing is a system that is breaking down, even if the people who are notionally running it don't seem to realize this. It's impossible to imagine this world in which nothing actually seems to work. It's hard to imagine that going on indefinitely. And I think that is our fear today, the sense that, you know, we have a world of complex systems, a world in which you are constantly navigating, you know, in which nothing can get built ever. You know, it's impossible to build a train line. It's impossible to build new subway lines. It's impossible to really build anything. You know, and this is something that famously, I think Mark Andreessen let everyone up by, by complaining about and saying, you know, we can do this again. We used to do this. And it's a powerful sense. But then, of course, we don't see anyone actually doing this. And without getting into the, you know, these, I guess, the more political aspects of our situation, you know, in terms of the left versus right or woke versus reactionary, there is that fundamental sense of kind of sclerosis, of inertia. It's hard to see how that actually is self-sustaining. So and I think in that sense, we are tilting away from that sort of indefinite future of a basically, you know, workable last man to something more like a world in which actually the most modern and developed systems actually cannot sustain themselves because of certain tensions and incoherencies. Yeah, you could say that for us to have a successful liberalism, even if it is of a low character, without any of the love of the beautiful, and really without even of the higher levels of philanthropy, that Brazil alludes to, we would at least need a pretty good analysis of motives and uh, a system clever enough 
to work without requiring any special achievement. It would have to be a system that works on not just on fairly basic motives, but on fairly modest capacities. And perhaps more even than that, on modest achievements. It would have to work without anybody having to try very hard and therefore without demanding any kind of sacrifice or any kind of dedication. It would have to be fairly easygoing or else even mundane achievements will turn out to require great endeavors, a a great act of the will or a great ability, something much out of the common way. And if that should be so, then, you know, somebody's going to have to sacrifice and who will do it? On what motive? For what? It's no longer clear that there are any causes worth fighting for, you would say. Well, if that's the case, you know, you're not going to have the achievements of intellect or will that those causes call for. Say That's the Nietzschean worry. That would be the last man. Boring people who survive by boring each other out of even attempting anything out of bad motives. A world where not even spite leads to murder, let's say. It should be more of a Dostoevskian theme. But Terry Gilliam, however, seems to suggest that the motives of human action are not themselves destructible. Our protagonist is destroyed in the story or the terrorists, maybe, you know, they don't amount to anything, but their motives are still there. It seems like this is a system that cannot wipe out the human nature, only, so to speak, repress it. And that's one way to look at it. Other people worry, however, that uh, actually you can wipe out the higher motives in human nature, the things that lead people to want to distinguish themselves. Of course, a big Hegelian theme and then the Nietzschean theme that uh, Fukuyama also wrestles with, but seems to abandon. And yet, if the system isn't clever enough, the famous line of T.S. Eliot that we always repeat, a system so perfect that none of us have to be good, smarts that replace virtues, technology, as, as I guess Heidegger would put it, that replaces any kind of human concern for human being and being as such. As you say, we're not achieving any of that. It's nowhere near Except, of course, in the fantasies of theorists. It's the sort of stuff that you might see in books. But if you look at the moral concerns that actuate people who read the news, you hear more and more intelligent people worry about systemic failures that are even beyond what you're saying. You know, why can't we build roads or airports or whatever anymore? Trains are running and collapsing. Like it's not collisions yet or or whatever, but, but mostly they're just railway accidents or electricity failures. The grid now and then collapses or... These sorts of concerns. Signs that put people in mind. Why do people notice this? Why do they talk about it? Somehow, this Brazil thing comes to their minds. The system is failing. This is a decrepit infrastructure. It's not one we can really control. And you don't know. You just hear a bit more often than you used to about near misses between planes, you know, on, on runways. At that, I guess that's where it would happen if you think about it. But, you know, I never thought about it before people started mentioning it to me. So once intelligent people start noticing these things, it reveals a certain mood in them, a certain concern. That is, you are saying the system isn't working. It's not exactly a system whose perfections you can hate because they dehumanize your children or friends or what have you. It's a system that isn't even working. There is indeed nobody at the wheel. But as you were trying to suggest before, it's not just that there's nobody at the wheel. There's no wheel either. You know, this is a concern, for example, for somebody like Mike Calanton, who keeps asking, look, I'm a political scientist. I don't know what our regime is. Like, who's in charge? Who makes the decisions? I'm not saying I would like those people or I don't like them or who should be in charge instead of them. But I'm saying who is in charge? Do we even know how anything gets done? And he passes for a fairly radical type of the right, full of bluster and spirit. 
But he says, you know, what we are is confused. That's the administration we have. If it succeeds in anything, it succeeds in this. It keeps us very confused. Well, no, you've said a mouthful. That's an entire political theory course right there. I mean, let me see if I can tie some of these together, because I guess one of the questions that the film at least tacitly raises is the relationship between nature and political order. And even if in the film it's so bleak and it's so hideous and there's almost no place for our protagonist's hopes to find purchase, we as the audience bring our own impulses to the film. And we respond to the protagonist partly because he seems to have what we would take to be a natural impulse toward beauty and toward goodness. Even though he's kind of feckless in some ways and a bit silly and British and meek and Jonathan Preishish, you know, we respond to this, and I think rightly so. And throughout the film, you get these indications of a world that has forgotten what nature is. You know, we talk about eating the bugs and living in the pods. One of the great visual jokes of the film is they go to this high-class restaurant where, A, all the women are absolutely hideous uh, because of plastic surgery. They don't realize they're hideous. They're just happy to be getting the plastic surgery, which only makes them uglier, which is probably one of the nastier jokes in the film, but it does land. And then, of course, the food they're eating is literally paste. And next, they choose, all the food they're eating is paste, but it's presented to them with pictures of what it's supposed to represent. Pictures of food that we represent stands next to the paste that they're forced to eat, and it's either, you know, salmon or filet mignon or what have you. And so there's this essential divorce from nature, and they're literally being force-fed it. And it's simply horrific, but also sort of comedic. And our sense as a viewer is this incredible disjunction between what is natural and what is represented there. And this basically works throughout the film until it gets to its final bleak ending. And what it seems to suggest, going back to your point, is this question of are there certain natural impulses that are actually required, not just good and desirable in and of themselves, but possibly required for a system to run? And to me, this goes back to Hobbes. This goes back to Bacon. But when I taught Leviathan, you know, one of the big questions we always land on is, who is going to fight for this society? How are you going to get people to fight for this society? And this is, of course, a big problem in Hobbes. I think it may be a fundamental one, you know, the impossibility of creating warriors in a world where the worst possible thing is violent death. But perhaps even beyond that, there is a problem of who's even going to make the society work? This is an argument that I've had with friends over the years. You know, one of the great jokes of Hobbes is the sovereign doesn't have to be anyone special. The sovereign can kind of be an ordinary Joe as long as we all agree just to listen to him for the sake of peace and commodious living. And I've argued with friends over, well, doesn't Hobbes kind of think he needs to be something more like a Machiavellian prince as long as he doesn't advertise it too much? And this is a debate, and I don't have a strong answer here. But the question is, are there certain virtues that we might describe as non-Hobbesian, non-Baconian virtues, virtues that are not simply a function of trying to live comfortably and to let the system run on its own? And does the system tacitly, if even if it's just going to work, doesn't rely on these virtues, doesn't rely on certain natural impulses of spiritedness, of desire for beauty, of passion, and frankly, of intelligence? I mean, this is one of the places where I think Brazil convert, you know, certainly it's a clear influence on Idiocracy, another prophetic dystopian film. The joke is that in Idiocracy, you know, everyone is literally stupid. And in the case of Brazil, it's more that they're just, they just don't care. And there's no reason for them to care. So they might as well be that stupid. And so there is something that. And I suppose our situation is somewhere between, as you say, at the baseline would be something like the ridiculous complexity of a system, which even intelligent people have to devote a great deal of time and resources to ordinary things like filing deeds, getting tax information, and what have you, in ways that are stultifying for you know what we might describe as better human pursuits. 
in this at the more catastrophic level, that's something like how much confidence are we losing? And are we, are we, you know, to what the extent that actually we will start seeing things like, you know, planes crashing and things like that. So, I mean, there is a sort of tension that rises from do we require a certain amount of virtue to have a world we actually want to live in? All the way to do we require a certain amount of natural virtue in order for the society to function at all and for us all to avoid, you know, constant catastrophes, if I can sum this up a bit. Yeah, I think that maybe this is the most important thing that the, the movie is obviously made for an audience. And it assumes that that audience does have natural powers and desires that will structure the interpretation of the work. How would you even know to, to laugh at the absurdities if you didn't know in the first place what is absurd, if you didn't have some inkling? of what might be natural, what would not be simply laughable because it's so pretentious and incompetent. The bureaucracy is so rife with comedy because it is infinitely pretentious and seldom very competent and never impressive. Once you notice that, you can never not notice it again, so to speak. At some point, you can also become aware of the fact that in a way, it's an attack on dignity. You have to do all of these forms. And it's not just that they're labyrinthine, it's that they're humiliating. As you say, we cannot not distinguish between what we think of as our higher pursuits and our lower necessities. No, and when once you make that distinction, you have identified in yourself some kind of love of the beautiful. Without that, you can't see the movie. You can't see it for what it is, that is to say. You can't understand any of it, much less start chasing down its concern for beauty or when you cannot have beauty in the ordinary sense, at least beauty in the sense in which the work of art offers it to you. There is something very artful in what Terry Gilliam and, and Tom Stoppard have written and directed. And these actors are quite good at conveying the absurdity of the situation and its potential for catastrophe. So that is at least some kind of coherence. That is an appeal to our self-respect as intelligent observers and moral agents concerned with the situation we're in, not merely curious about it, concerned. So in a strange way, the bleaker the picture gets, the more it, it makes an appeal for us to look at ourselves as uh, the kinds of beings for whom this situation is an impossibility. I'm not saying that if the world watched Brazil, finally things would be all right. We would all be amused and indignant in the right ways and would go to work tomorrow and change things. That I think is going too far. But I would say that anybody who notices some of the things that we've been talking about and responds to the movie is, on the one hand, more clear-headed about the drama of our own lives, and on the other hand, maybe more importantly, more clear-headed about himself, about the higher concerns we have and the way in which we stake our claim to dignity on a certain quest for nobility and on a certain intelligence. That's, I think, what the title, Brazil, that points to this song rather than the country, is about. It's what's missing in the movie, this beautiful melody that is sort of peaceful. I tend to think of it that way, that Brazil is the fantasy you could have that might not be merely fantasy for another world that isn't so screwed up. Uh, at mean, any rate, I think that's the relationship we have to, to the story. How would you even know that it's absurd and yet cruel? If you didn't have a notion in your head that is beautiful and yet not fatuous of what it might mean for us to have a more natural order, a more reasonable arrangement as, as a community and as people. I don't have an answer to this, but I think one of the really bleak takeaways is the possibility that our, and I think this is maybe to raise this too high a level, this is something like the fear that comes out in the Strauss-Kozhev debate. You know, the possibility that you could have a world that was so totalizing in which the possibility of philosophy had been eradicated. And to take this down a few notches, 
to me, I guess part of the fear is the possibility of having a world in which actually that impulse to beauty no longer had an outlet because no one any longer knew what it was. I thought about this a lot when I was looking at the kind of development of the meta, for example. I mean, this world is so obviously unappealing to me. And I can't imagine being friends with someone who didn't find this appealing, who didn't find this unappealing. You know, I mean, who would look at that? And, you know, the word that these designers like use is qualia. You know, what does the world feel like? What does it feel like to be a human? Or what if you forgot what it felt like to be a human? And I feel in the same way that I can't imagine being friends with someone who thought meta was a cool idea. I'm unable to be friends with people who don't really listen to music or, you know, they own three albums and they're all greatest hits albums. But we do live in a world increasingly in which the music people listen to is sort of garbage streaming through, you know, highly compressed Bluetooth sound. You have entire generations of people who rarely if ever hear music as it's meant to be heard. I mean, they literally don't know what music is supposed to sound like. We stream everything. They don't know what Lawrence of Arabia could look like. I mean, what if our qualia, what if our sense of beauty, what if our sense of what the world is and our sense of what it is supposed to be to be human can, in effect, be diminished to the point? And this is something you see in the film. I mean, the film, all the people living at the top, the highest sophisticated levels of society, I mean, it's hellish. You would not remotely want to be an elite in the society of Brazil. And I think about this a lot today. I mean, how much harder is it to be middle class today? How much do you have to strive to have just the possibility of going on vacation, much less owning a house? How much do you have to punish yourself to get what used to be more or less common? And it becomes increasingly normalized. Yeah, I think that has to do with the plausibility of the story. We we really are in this kind of trouble. And I think anybody who has the judgment to discern can tell in many ways we are decadent. We have decayed in all sorts of ways that have become generalized. It's not some weird thing that happened or it's not just a fashion. In many important ways, things are getting worse. In fact, I would say that the movie itself is based on this understanding in the sense that in a healthy society, people would not even watch that story. To some extent, they would not need it because there's not impending catastrophe, let's say, to warn them about them. But to an extent, their taste would not tolerate this much ugliness. This is the odd situation we're in. Uh, we have become too sophisticated for our own good. And this does not make us very competent, very wise, or even discerning in what concerns the beautiful. So I think the drama is very, very real. I would say that there are some limits to this fear of decay. Not to say that civilization doesn't collapse. It does collapse. <laughs> it happened. It might happen again. I can't think of any very good argument why it should never happen again. I wouldn't like it to, but that's, I don't think a very strong argument. Now, the limits I do see in probable terms have to do with, in a way, what it takes to understand the movie. At some level, you have to ask yourself about the character of the character. What kind of guy is this? The things he does, the things he says, do they add up? What are the consequences? To some extent, you have to be able to reason about cause and effect, actions and consequences. You have to try to put together the various aspects of the character. If you are able to do this, what makes us human is not destroyed. It can have taken some bad hits, but that's a very different matter. To some extent, our belief that human nature, including this moral concern, love of the beautiful, is indestructible, doesn't hinge on, you know, are you going to have a brick fall on your head or be born in a tyranny or what have you. It hinges on these other kinds of questions. What is the origin of our understanding of causality? How far can you debase human nature? How far can you politicize in a despotic way our nature? So in a way, even being able to raise these questions or to lament our decay shows that our powers are much greater than our opportunities to exercise them. And that does speak well for our nature, not so well for our politics, obviously. 
and then you know the example of various kinds of tyrannies in the 20th century as well as before that suggests human nature has not been destroyed indeed in in some of these cases tyranny brings out great men not to say that they will win or what have you but the power of this kind of decadence over human nature seems quite limited perhaps the overall thesis of the end of history of progress reaching its culmination in making us into animals again is even more encompassing than what something like brazil uh, contemplates like you i also thought about the strauss-kozhev debate and the relationship between tyranny and the human claim to dignity and intelligence but i don't think the evidence of our decay is that persuasive we would have to at least become unable to recognize our decay as decay and perhaps at a more fundamental level we would have to no longer be able to ask ourselves what's wrong with us that i think would be a precondition or some kind of moral psychological evidence for the thesis of progress what makes the creatures of the end of history so contemptible is they have no self awareness they cannot ask themselves that they say what's wrong with them there's no tension there's no dedoubling in our spiritedness or an ability to look down on yourself or to look up to somebody the evidence for that i think is still very limited i think that's right and i mean to much that we do have to proceed from our own ordinary experiences you know with sort of the pre-political experiences which i think precede ideological commitment and in some sense i do think you know it is like to paraphrase potter stewart's definition of pornography i mean you know it when you see it we know beauty when we see it we know in a sense that feeling of a natural experience i think provided that we haven't been overly warped or twisted in some way by either some kind of bureaucratic totalitarianism or by simply ideological suasion. And this, I think, in the film is where you do see probably more Tom Stoppard's hand than Gilliam's because Stoppard, it's such a theme for him, the experience and the, you know, the importance of human life and human experience against, you know, systems, against ideology. And to bring this back this is one way in which I do think because I'm very wary of calling this sort of modern or contemporary woke stuff ideological in the way that we think of the grand ideologies of the 20th century for example the 19th century but it's one way in which it is something like an ideology and it's something that somehow I think supports what you might call the brazilianization of our society because of the way that it works to separate ourselves our consciousness from our natural experience, our sense of ourselves as natural beings. And I think this is something that in a way serves these kinds of bureaucratic systems, even if in the end it will not actually achieve anything like a true ideological objective in the way that communism had an ideological objective. But I think it severs us from our sense of nature. And I think this can only, as they say, you know, benefit the system. Yeah, I think that's right. I think in terms of Brazil, you could see how something like woke would arise precisely as a reaction to decay that makes the decay worse, tries to interpret the suffering that decay brings to people in a community in such a way that it makes for a lot more suffering. You could say it turns the suffering into a principle. That's right. And it's also why I don't think that these attempts to link wokeness to the kind of political totalitarianism you see under, for example, you know, Soviet communism or you know, something like that, or even or even the Cultural Revolution. I mean, I think those are stretches. And I think they also misunderstand the effect. I think it really is something more like a quasi-colleague and friend of mine, uh, Chris Mott, had a good piece on the woke imperium. And talk about the way in which this sort of, you know, these kind of discourses, in the end, they, all they're going to do is serve the system. They will serve the, you know, the bureaucratization of life, you know, and they will allow for increasing surveillance, increasing intrusion, but not for the purpose of some kind of ultimate ideological objective. Again, it's something that merely serves as a kind of rhetorical cover. 
for a system that increasingly controls you in very ordinary state-like ways and also makes your life worse. But at the same time, it, it provides that cover for saying, no, this is normal. This is natural. There isn't some higher standard to which we might appeal. And in that sense, I think it serves the ordinary and dull and quotidian aspect of the system more than it serves some kind of ultimate totalitarian project, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think there's a lot to that. I think that political analysis that don't reckon with our decadence are going to come up with analogies that aren't particularly adequate. And the phenomena we contemplate with increasing horror like wokeness are phenomena of decadence. They do not belong to any other stage of political development, would be even unintelligible. It would be good to have an idea of political health against which to compare this kind of madness that I think is also very important. And somehow, however, it has become difficult. I would say that to the extent to which there is a kind of victory to wokeness, temporary perhaps, but real, it's that there's very little reaction against it that says these people are obviously crazy and the institutions that allow them to thrive are crazy. These people didn't make the institutions. The institutions made them. People who went crazy woke at 20 were institutionalized at six or seven and they've been running through that gauntlet and this is how they came out. It's not the extremists or the problem, it's the moderates, so to speak. That attitude I find very, very rare, but I recommend it. I think that's the way to think about our political situation. And I wish there were more art to reveal that in a way that's more persuasive than me saying this. And I think all of these kinds of stories of tyranny help to the extent to which they reveal how screwed up our situation is and how hard it is to get an audience to see it right. That is, most of our better artists for a long time have been arguing that what seems to us absurd, it's crazy how mysterious this work of art is, is really our unwillingness to face what's in front of us. It's not surrealism, it's just realism. It's just a realism where we, we would reject for moral reasons. And that, I think, is a very difficult task. I don't often second-guess these artists precisely because I'm aware how difficult it is for us to look at our situation straight. And, and that would mean, to some extent, just compare the crazy stuff, normal stuff. What would reasonable people do? What would they be like? What would they put up with? And where would they say no? And what would they do about it? These are not questions that come up and are answered frequently enough. So at least we should be able to keep our sanity and maybe help each other thinking and talking through these things. And in that sense, I think we have a lot more to, to benefit from our better artists. Maybe it's just impossible to acknowledge, but maybe it's not impossible to acknowledge that these people are doing public services in the way most public institutions are. I don't know what exactly the practical consequences of this could be. After all, it's just a movie. But maybe there is something to it. One assumes there is something to it because they're quite intelligent. They're quite powerful emotionally as well. No, I agree. Well, this is one of those places I probably am an idealist. I think there is such a thing as sentimental education, and I think that's something an art can play a role in. In a way, because it gets under our skin and it gets around our political biases. I mean, whatever your politics, I can't imagine an, uh, anyone who wasn't somehow damaged in some fundamental way watching Brazil and thinking, yeah, that's okay. That world looks all right. I could live there. And this is the effect. And you can say it's absurd. And you know, the grotesqueness can be almost overwhelming and, and seem implausible. But it has that effect of going, you can't, it gets behind your defenses. And this is in the way that David Lynch films get around your defenses. It hits us in a certain part of our subconscious and maybe and becomes a starting point for reflection and thinking, well, whatever that is, I hate it. And then you start thinking, is what way are we verging on that? What way are we like that? And what could we do to not become that? 
And I think that this is certainly a role that art like this can play. And I think it can appeal to our natural and, how, and healthier sensibilities, if only in a negative sense. Yeah, exactly. It, it is strange how indirect it is. It's very powerful, but it is a negative thing. It tells you what not to be like, how not to do things. But it, it wouldn't work unless we had this nature. That's also part of the service these people provide. They put you in touch with your nature. You realize things about yourself and it comes with the force that things have when they are not you know, on the schedule, on the agenda part of the received opinion and uh, approved by the people who approve things. It's precisely the extent to which they avoid not just ideology, but even common opinion and our cliches. I would say that our advertising and our artists are in a race. The artists want to get away from our cliches and the advertising tries to turn them into new cliches. And it's not clear which one will win. To what extent can artists still get around our defenses and to what extent we just look at it intelligently and say, oh, I understand. This is that. This is like that. Play clever recognition games instead of wondering why does this hit us? This is what our cinema podcasts are about. Trying to look at these things as they are meant by the artists who make them. Trying to understand what it is that we feel when we see these kinds of stories on screen. And hoping that it's still better for people to experience the movies than to somehow read the encyclopedia entry about them or to read the clever dismissal of them that makes it impossible for human beings to respond to what are, after all, uh, attempts to reveal our own nature to us. That said, I think we've come to the end of this discussion. David, thank you very much for joining me. I think we have shown some of what we have learned and thought along the way about politics and philosophy and art and the relationship in our particularly troubling and and confusing political situation. And so with that, I hope that the audience will enjoy and reflect on Terry Gilliam and Brazil especially. And all the best to you until next time. Thank you so much for having me. And yeah, I want to say all the depressing parts just have to do with the movie. It's not my fault, but I really enjoyed it. (laughs) All right, David. Take care.